everyone. Welcome to another edition of Meet the Creator. I'm going to be interviewing historian and author Tom Holland today about his new book that has been illustrated by Jason Cockcroft, and it's called The Wolf Girl, The Greek and the Gods. Um, welcome to the interview. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for making the time to talk to us. We're, we're very pleased that you have. So um, would it be OK with you if we start with a, a reading from the book from yourself? Yes, absolutely. So um, the book is set in ancient Greece um, and uh, its protagonist is a Spartan princess by the name of Gorgo. So she is the daughter of, of one of the two kings of Sparta. Sparta is very odd. They have two, not one king. Um, and she... Uh, I'm going to read from the opening of the book and she's up on the, the slopes of the mountain above the city of Sparta with her friends. It's the afternoon. She's fallen asleep and then she wakes. When I woke suddenly and found the wolf staring down directly at me, his breath heavy on my face, I did let out a little scream. It is shameful to admit this, of course, but since it is my intention as I write always to tell the truth, I do not deny it. The wolf's eyes were very yellow. They seemed to blaze. The creature himself was a monstrous size. His mouth was so huge and his jaws so sharp that I knew he could easily snap off my head with a single bite. I stared at him and he stared at me. I felt the cool of the night against my skin and wondered if this would be the last thing I ever felt. Then the wolf gave a soft yowl. He lay down on all fours and looked at me again. It seemed he was waiting. I reached out and touched him. The wolf did not move, save to gesture with his head. I stroked him. His fur was very thick. I rose to my feet. A second time the wolf gestured with his head. I laid my ear to his flank. I could hear his great heart pulsing. He shifted. He still seemed to be waiting for me to do something. Then suddenly I understood. I clambered onto his back and gripped the fur on his massive shoulders. The wolf rose to his feet. He sniffed the air. And then, with a soaring leap, we were away. Like a dream it was, that ride. Down the slopes of Tigatus, through shadow and across moonlit glades, until at last we came to Sparta. Onwards the wolf loped. Only we... Only when we came to the house where my mother lay did he finally stop. I slid off his back. He whined gently and licked my face. His tongue was very rough. Then he was gone and I wondered if I had imagined him. But there I was, outside my mother's sick room. That was real enough. Clearly the wolf must have brought me back home to Sparta for a reason. And so I went inside. Wonderful. What a fabulous introduction. Um, so obviously you've written many books, but am I right in thinking this is your first book for younger readers? Yes, it is. I mean, it's certainly the first I've written, but mm. I should say that um, the inspiration for this actually comes from um, a trip I made years ago to write another book called Persian Fire, which was about the Persian invasions of Greece. Um and I went with my wife and my two young daughters. In fact, my youngest daughter was incredibly young. I think she was six months. But my yeah. elder daughter, she'd just gone to reception. We pulled her out of reception. Um, and so we were going round. Uh, we, we drove all the way to Greece. And we were going looking at all these battlefields and temples and things. And I had to try and get my daughter interested and not completely yeah. lose her. 
Um, and there is actually um, in Herodotus, the great historian whose account of the Persian invasions of Greece is the, the first history ever written, th there is a young girl in it. Um, and, and she is Gorgo, this princess. Um, and she appears kind of regularly throughout Herodotus's history. And so I thought, well, I, I will tell the story of the Persian Wars through the eyes of Gorgo to my daughter. Um, and I kind of slightly rewove the story to make sure that Gorgo was always present at the key events, say the Battle of Marathon, the Battle of Thermopylae and Salamis and everything. Um, and I... The memory of telling that story and of, of of kind of reworking it in that way stuck with me. And so when um, uh, when Walker Books asked me if I would like to to write a children's book, I kind of thought, well, it's already in my head. That's what I would like to do. And so that's basically where the idea came from. So I it is absolutely the first story I've written, but it's not the first story that I've had in my head. It's, it's been, been there all along. <laughs> yeah. So was that... Um... Did you find that a very different process from writing for adults? I mean, w were there things you had to bear in mind? You know, was it um, out of your comfort zone, if you like, writing? Well, do you know, the odd thing is that that in certain ways, no, because the, 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 the requirements are the same, that you have to introduce characters and you can't assume that your readers, whether they're adult or whether they are young, are going to know very much about sparta or persia or athens or anything so you have to explain it all it's just that the way that you do it obviously is different and there, there are certain that there was one way in particular in which i think that this children's book i hope does a better job of explaining what ancient greece was like than the actual work of history i did and that is the fact that in this children's book the gods are real and extraordinary things happen so you know spoiler alert that wolf, that giant wolf who carries Gorgo down to see her, her her dying mother is actually her father, Cleomenes, the king of Sparta. And there was this sense in ancient Greece that there was something terrifying and lycanthropic about the Spartans, that in a sense, they literally became like wolves. They hunted in a pack. They were terrifying in that way. Um, and there was, there was another, um, there was a passage in... Um, a, a Greek guide to, to 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 the country that was written several centuries after this, in which he the, the writer says, in Athens, all the girls aged ten go to this shrine called Brauron, which is a temple to to Artemis, the um, the the mistress of beasts on the Attic coast, and they go there, and there they turn into bears. And scholars have written all kinds of stuff about what this might mean, you know, what's going on here. But I actually thought the easiest explanation is that they did actually turn into bears. And so in my account, they do turn into bears. And I always wondered when I was a child reading about Greek myths and, and about the Trojan War, and then the Trojan War finishes and Odysseus goes home and he dies. And then that seems to be it. The gods seem to vanish. Uh, and, and when I went on to read uh, as a child about Greek history, I was always a bit sad that Zeus or Athena, whoever, weren't turning up any longer. But actually, when you read Herodotus, you realize that they do. I mean, the gods do intervene. So Pan appears, um, you know, the, 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 the half goat, half man. He, he appears at the Battle of Marathon. So I, I think that in a way, telling this story with the gods as, as, as real things and people actually turning into animals 
I think gets you into the mindset of the ancient Greeks much better than a kind of objective scholarly history does, oddly. So I, I really, really enjoyed writing it for that reason. So obviously this is beautifully illustrated by... Gorgeous. I, I, I was so excited. The, the more... Um, you know, the more pictures came in, I would look forward to it every week. I'd think, oh, what am I going to get this time? They're, uh, they're stunning. I feel so lucky to have. I mean, it's just a beautiful book. I've never had such the a beautiful book published. And it, it, it's, you know, the words, the illustrations. But then, and I know our members will be very pleased to see this, when you take off the jacket, it's just as beautiful underneath. Yeah, um, look at the wolf. It's just so stunning, isn't it? But you've actually just answered the question I was going to ask you, because I was going to ask you whether you felt Jason had put your ideas and your characters into his images and it matched up with what you thought in your head. I think it was better than that. I think it improved them. I think, um, you know, I, I wrote the book, but obviously I had a kind of particular sense of what was going on in my head. But I didn't have that kind of visual language that Jason has evoked. And now when I read the book, I, I, I see the events through the illustrations that he's done. It's kind of like his vision of of the world has absolutely sharpened and enhanced mine, even though I wrote the book. Now, you, it's interesting what you've just told me about the fact that um, that's why you chose to write it from Gordo's um, uh, point of view, because that's what I really appreciated. I loved the fact that this was a book about mythology and war that tends to be thought of as a boy thing, a boy thing. Yes, um, I, I, I think, I mean, I think there's been a massive trend recently in um, not just adult fiction, but young adult fiction as well for te retelling the Greek myths through a kind of the female gaze. Yeah. So um, that's, in, I mean, it's it's almost become kind of um, a standard. So I guess in one sense, I'm, I'm going with that trend. But I agree that... Um, the uh, the the story of the um, the Persian invasion. I mean, it's su such a thrilling story. Yeah. This kind of vast empire invading Greece completely against the odds. The Greeks managed to to to, to see it off, and there's all this kind of drama and heroism. Um, but of course, I mean, it would have impacted women just as much as the men. And yeah. actually, one of the things that I wanted to get across in the book was that, um, say, with Athens what everyone knows about the democracy in Athens is that men had to vote and women didn't. And obviously that tends to be chalked up as a black mark against the Athenians. But I think that the Athenian understanding of democracy was not at all uh, like ours. Ours is based on the idea that everyone has rights and therefore a woman has as much right to a vote as a man. But for the, but, but for the Athenians, it was different. For, for the Athenians, the, the, the demos was this idea that the everyone who had been born is living and will be born from the soil of Attica is in some way a part of a kind of communion between the earth, the people and the gods in a very strange way that we can't really get a handle on and that Demos therefore is a kind of god. And so in the book, uh, Jason's done a wonderful illustration of Demos as a kind of giant rising up over the Acropolis. And in this understanding of democracy, women as much as men have a 
crucial role to play because the men have the vote because it's their job to to pass the laws and to fight and to keep the, the democracy functioning as a political entity. But it's the role of the, of women to liaise with the gods, to speak to the gods. Um, and that's the point of them going off as girls to become bears, is that for a year they live with Artemis and her nymphs. And so they have an access to the dimension of the divine in the way that men don't. And so when they come back and they turn into girls and then they grow up and they marry, Every Athenian man knows that he's living with a, a, a woman who has lived with the goddess. And in a children's book where the gods are real, you can kind of make that vivid, I think, in a yeah. way that you, you can't. Because obviously, I mean, women, you know, people today don't, don't believe in the gods. And so for a man to say, oh, well, it's fine, you know, you go off and live with the gods. That's not that's not great. But if you're writing a book in which the gods are actually real, then that is something really powerful. And so Gorgo as the heroine. It's because she's a girl that she has this peculiar sense of intimacy with the gods. And there's definitely a feeling in Greece that it's it's women, not men, who have that, that sense of intimacy with the gods. So would you tell me a little bit more about your podcast, The Rest is History? We are slightly upping our game because we are we're doing the podcast as live shows. So kind of unbelievably, we did it in the Theatre Royal Drury Lane um, a few weeks ago, which is the oldest continuously used theatre in, in the English-speaking world. So that was an incredible thrill. But we went to um, Ireland to do a show in Dublin, and we took advantage of that to do some series on Irish history in the GPO in yeah. Dublin, which is where the Easter Rising um, was was uh, announced. Um, and I just came back yesterday from Paris, where we were recording some episodes on the... Um, uh, the uh, the Avenimore of 1968, so all the student riots and so on. Um, and before that, we were in Amsterdam doing doing a history of the city there. And we're going on Saturday to Washington and New York to do some live shows there. And we will be doing some episodes there too. So um, everything is becoming a little bit more frenetic. I know as a child, um, you loved both dinosaurs and ancient civilizations. But which period of history as a grown-up do you find the most fascinating and have you got a favourite? Uh, the Romans. I love the Romans. Yeah. I I, I think I because I've written the most about them, I've studied them the closest. Yeah. I find them simultaneously completely terrifying and kind of admirable. Yeah. I kind of love them um, in a way that you might love something terrifying and frightening. I mean, so you compared it to dinosaurs. I mean, it would be like you could, you know, you could, I would love to see a tyrannosaur, but I wouldn't want one as a pet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. No, I certainly wouldn't. I think I I would quite possibly agree with you, although I must admit I'm I'm rather keen on Dickensian London and, and books around that. And that's Well, I love, I love Dickens as well. Well, just to finish off, uh, something on a lighter note. Now, I noticed from your tweets that you're a fan of biscuit tea. Oh, I love biscuit tea. <laughs> yeah, I've just, yeah. I've just finished one. <laughs> well, ditto, ditto. Oh, um, it's so good, isn't it? Have, have you tried um, truffle marmite? It's the other great oh, no. culinary innovate. Oh, it's amazing. It's marmite, which I don't normally like, but with truffle, which I do. <laughs> oh, that sounds amazing. Oh, a bit you've high. got such a treat ahead of you. I, I mean, I sometimes I wake in the middle of the night. And I think, brilliant, it's only five hours until I can have some biscuit tea and some truffle marmite. 
Well, it's been an absolute delight talking to you, Tom. Thank you so much for making time in what is an immensely busy schedule to talk to us. So thank you, thank you very much. Thank and, you. Um, let's keep our fingers crossed that you do get the chance to do one on the Romans because that would be just amazing. Fingers crossed.